Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. He had uh, a milk pump used to carry milk around dairy uh, to connect these tubes, which were actually the same tubes you'd use for beer. So in a bar to bring up the the beer from the cellar, uh, he used those beer tubes and a milk pump and connected a parent to a child. So when he cramped off the child's heart, it was the parent who was doing the breathing for the child. Hey, everyone. I'm Dr. Oz, and this is the Dr. Oz Podcast. We're joined by a colleague, a writer from Great Britain who's written a wonderful book called Blood and Guts, A History of Surgery. Richard Hullingham is a science journalist, author, and a BBC radio presenter, so he's well-versed with the, the art of radio. He's joining us today to talk about the blood and guts. Richard, thank you for joining us. No, you're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me on your excellent show. Well, you're very kind. Now, uh, we live in a time when surgeries become pretty routine, and... Uh, that's a pretty recent development. I, until probably 1900, most folks who went to the hospital did not expect to survive the visit. You actually went back even further and started around 1850 with a description of an amputation. Just get everyone up to date on what surgery was like uh, 150 years ago. Well, let me tell you about just a few years before that. So about 1842, something like that. And imagine you're in a city like New York or, or London, one of the the modern cities of, of the industrial age. And the operating theatre, well, it's a bit like a theatre if you go to see a play. There's these steps where surgical colleagues could look down on the operation. Then there's the operating table, which was, well, just a table, but stained with blood, sawdust on the floor to, to catch the, the blood from the, the operations themselves. And no anaesthetic. So the patient would be probably dragged in screaming normally um, because they really did not want this excruciating, awful, appalling procedure. They'd be strapped down to the operating table and then it was all about speed. So the surgeon with their frock coat encrusted with the the blood and pus of of previous operations, I mean, they didn't want to get their, their street clothes dirty, they would... Just work as quickly as possible. Apply a, a tourniquet to the top of the, of the leg, say for a, a leg amputation, slice through the flesh, pull it back, saw through the bone, and then stitch up the, the blood vessels, release the tourniquet, and that was it. They could do it in 30 seconds. They could remove a leg, which would be just drop into the, the sawdust on, on the floor. Uh, you can just, I don't think you can actually. I don't think I can imagine the horror 
of that, of, of watching that, or, or we're still experiencing that. What were the types of operations? I mean, you, you mentioned amputations, which I, I can sort of imagine, although it's difficult having done them in the modern era. What kind of other procedures would folks willingly have done? I, I mean, you say they're dragged in, they're not wanting the surgery, but they had to consent, I gather, right? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those I mean, awful decisions you would have had to make. Do you have the surgery and live? or not have the surgery and almost certainly die. So no antibiotics, no understanding really of, of disease or, or, or infection. So if you had a, a compound fracture, that's when the, the bone would come up through the leg side. Let's, let's talk about a, a leg amputation. Um, it gets infected, gets blood poisoning, gangrene. The only way to survive is to remove the leg. So that's your choice. Operate and reasonable chance of living, depending on how good the surgeon is, uh, or not operate and almost certainly die. So really it's surgery of last resort. So no brain surgery, no heart surgery, nothing where you cut into the body, because if you cut into the body, good chance you'll introduce infection and the patient will die. What percentage of the people would die with surgery anyway? Well, it sort of depends on, um, on the surgeon. Um, one of my favorite surgeons is a, a British surgeon, um, very tall, um, arrogant man. Um, arrogant is, is a word you associate with surgeons uh, over the years, no offense. Um, <laughs> None taken. <laughs> <laughs> and, and botched is another one. But, uh, but Robert Liston was, um, he was, a, he was a great surgeon, and only about one in six of his patients would die. He operated very quickly, very efficiently, very cleanly. Um, but other surgeons, I mean, you have to imagine that surgery wasn't really, they weren't that well trained, some of them. Um, and becoming a surgeon was often about knowing the right people. So some of the surgeons were shocking, I mean, awful. Um, and you really would be better not having the operation than with them. And they killed almost all of their, all of their patients. Because it's like, de- you know, that joke, the Chi-Chi jo- do- joke, you can either die, you can, you can have death or death by Chi-Chi. It's like you have the torture and then you die instead of just dying with the surgery. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, it, these are all terrible choices that you have to make. And particularly in the, the 19th century where you've got this industrialization, you've got factories, you've got trains, you've got trams, all, all these things. And there are more and more nasty accidents and amputation was becoming, becoming more and more common. Uh, you, know, you mentioned surgical training not being ideal. How, how were surgeons trained? And I gathered, I, I'm at Columbia University, so it's called the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons. And I know in Great Britain, the surgeons are not called doctors, they're called misters. So uh, I, I, were surgeons trained at completely different institutions? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, doctors didn't really like surgeons. Doctors were considered, um, well, doctors, physicians were considered professionals, um, very high standing in, in society. Whereas surgeons, well, they come from, from the barber surgeon tradition. So you, you go to the, the barbers and have you shave, your hair cut. They would also do amputations. So that's, it became as a craft. Surgery was a craft rather than a, a profession, if you like. So, you know, surgeons were almost considered like uh, carpenters or, or, or blacksmiths. And it was only really around the, the 19th century they started to get any respect, which is, which is strange, really. The doctors, they didn't know anything. I mean, the surgeons could actually save people's lives, whereas doctors did all sorts of, of weird stuff and bloodletting and all sorts of, odd potions that, that were ineffective. 
Well, Voltaire spoke frequently about the role of medicine in the 18th century. It wasn't much better than the 19th century, I guess. So in any case, we've got these surgeons. They're not that well-trained. Um, they're, they're not doctors, but that might not be a bad thing 150 years ago. And they're doing fairly uh, urgent procedures, nothing really of the nature that we talk about in surgery today. And just to be clear on this, there was no anesthesia, right? For, to my recollection, anesthesia didn't really even exist until uh, the initial use of ether around that time. So it's, yeah, about 1846. Um, it was an American invention, um, a, a guy called, well, it's still slightly controversial, but um, it, it's accepted, really, that it's a guy called uh, William Morton, who was a dentist. So you had ether, and then um, the Brits um, didn't like the fact that this was an uh, American invention. Uh, they called it a Yankee Dodge. So they came up with chloroform. Uh, so you had ether and chloroform, and both had their advantages and disadvantages. I mean, the big disadvantage of ether was it was highly flammable. So you're operating in these grimy operating theatres under gas lights, and you're introducing just a, a few inches away from the gas light this highly flammable ether. That, that was a, a recipe for disaster. And then chloroform, um, they were just applying it to rags and sticking it over people's faces to knock them out. And it turned out that often when you did that, you killed the person you were trying to knock out. You've got to get the balance exactly right. So it was very imprecise. But obviously, you know, suddenly you can do surgery without, without the pain. What a wonderful thing for surgeons. The trouble is they hadn't worked out anything about infection or disease. So they were doing all these operations. They thought for the first time, oh, we could cut into the body. We could remove an appendix or, or fiddle around. And more patients were dying as a result of introducing anesthetics than before they had the anesthetics. But did they, have, they used to have parties, didn't they? Ether parties and all kinds of other crazy get-togethers? Oh, yeah, this, this is what, uh, this is, this is what uh, passed for, um, for uh, rigorous um, experimentation at, at the time. Um, ether, they'd, uh, they'd take the surgeons, would, would have the, their friends around and, uh, and visiting dignitaries and the like, and they'd pass the ether around, and people would, uh, you know, they'd laugh at the people as they, so they'd sprawled out on the floor. Uh, chloroform was, uh, I mean, this is a this is particularly dangerous uh, anaesthetic. Um, a guy called James Simpson uh, in Scotland, um, he'd experimented all sorts of uh, amounts on himself. He, uh, uh, he had parties, his niece passed out on the sofa describing herself as an angel. Um, they just, yeah, it, it was like a, like a parlor game, a, a party game, but <laughs> these, these things were really dangerous. Well, how, 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 I mean, I guess, would the surgeon's assistant give the anesthesia? Who would actually do the administration if that's where most of the, the risk was? Yeah, there was no, um, no anesthetist, no one who would actually, actually do this stuff. I mean, either the surgeon or, or one of the assistants, quite a few assistants you'd, you'd have with the, with the surgery. Because it had come up through the tradition of being quick and fast, you needed everyone to do everything right, like a military operation. And that was... One of the other things that anaesthetics enabled surgeons to do was to slow down a bit. They didn't have to go quite so fast. But again, by slowing down, they increased the risk of infection. And uh, I, I, there was some transition, obviously. They had to have been. Otherwise, we, still would, we wouldn't be able to do surgery that we can do today. So what was the, the major change that allowed anesthesia to become safer and more broadly applicable? Uh, I think the, the big change was not so much with, with anaesthetics. I think there was a period, really, in the, the middle of the 19th century where they understood how the body fitted together. They could stem blood loss, so 
in an operation, if they were lopping off uh, an arm or a leg, they could, they could tie it off. They could tie off the, the blood vessels. Um, they could control pain, so people weren't enduring this awful agony. But they were still dying because they didn't understand infection. So I think the big, if you like, if there was a big surgical breakthrough, it wasn't anaesthetic, although, you know, we think, well, pain relief, surely that's a big deal. It wasn't that. It was understanding infection. And uh, this guy, uh, Joseph Lister, who really put the bits together and worked out what was causing all these patients to die despite successful surgery. Uh, and that was bacteria getting into the wounds. It was this idea of, of germs of an infection. And that really, I mean, that then, from the end of the 19th century, when surgeons started washing their hands using clean, clean gowns, it just seems extraordinary that they weren't to me. Um, and then eventually gloves and masks, that's when really things, things could take off. And I, I, I gather, and by the way, before I even leave anesthesia for one second, because I was curious about this, when you're, if you're using a, a gauze to put people to sleep, doesn't that gas slip into the operating theater and, and, and anesthetize the, the surgeon as well? Yeah, they did have this. Um, not so much with the chloroform, but more with the ether when you're administering, administering this, uh, this gas. Actually, later on, with um, sort of facial reconstructive surgery, the early plastic surgery, um, they were doing in World War I to cope with uh, some of the terrible injuries that were coming from the, from the trenches or, or, or from, from modern warfare. And well, the surgeon had to was bending over uh, in the operating theater, over very close to faces, where you got this, this mask of, of ether, and surgeons were just keeling over, um, knocking themselves out with, with the gas that was meant to be knocking out their patients. We have a lot more to talk about, but first, let's take a quick break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. So, uh, so we've survived anesthesia. We're, we're, we've got this huge advance in, in uh, infections. And I, I gather part of that was through the whole understanding of germ theory. And, and much, yeah. of, much of that came from Semmelweis's work. Can you, can you walk our audience through that a little bit? Yeah, well, they, 
what I find extraordinary and incredibly frustrating when you look at the, the history of surgery, how long it took surgeons and the, the medical profession, if you like, to, to make the connection between what was killing their patients, the diseases killing their patients, and, and germs, and that it was some sort of bacteria, microorganisms, because microorganisms were discovered, you know, way back in the, the, the 1700s. So they didn't make any sort of connection. There was this um, surgeon, Semmelweis, um, who was working in, in Vienna, and he worked in this, uh, this uh, woman's hospital. So uh, women would come in dealing with pregnancies. So he was coming in. Uh, the women were coming into this hospital, and they go into one of two wards. They go into a ward which was looked after by the surgeons, the cream of the, of the Austrian medical profession, or they could go into one that was overlooked by midwives. And the midwives, they were considered by, by surgeons as kind of, you know, the, the lower ranks, if you, if you like. So, you know, surely it would be best to be in the, in the ward with the doctors and the, and the surgeons. But what they were finding is that the, the patients that came in and were looked after by the doctors, about one in, in five, one in, one in six were dying. Um, and they were getting this awful, this awful disease. I mean, it's called childbed fever. It's essentially a type of blood poisoning. Whereas the ones that were seen by the midwives, most of them, most of the women survived despite complications in childbirth. And this surgeon, this doctor, Semmelweis, was determined to do something about this problem. And he, he looked at every aspect of this. He, he looked at the position of the women when they were in labor. He decided to do, oh, do more autopsies and, and see what had happened to, to the women. He even tried to stop the priest who went around the wards ringing his, his little bell because he thought, well, maybe it's the fear, the fear of, of this disease that was, that was killing the women. And what he eventually realized was that it was because the, the surgeons were going from the autopsies straight into the wards to examine their women patients, but barely washing their hands in between. I mean, this is just horrible. So they, had the, they would even describe that this was somehow attractive, this, this sweet smell of the cadavers was somehow attractive to the women. So they're going from autopsies straight to the women. And as soon as Samovai stopped this, he made them wash their hands in a sort of bleach, sort of bleach solution. And it wasn't until then that suddenly it was becoming safe to, to have a child in this, in this hospital. The trouble was, and the tragedy of this story, is that Samovai was, was quite a difficult man. And he couldn't get his theory accepted, even though it seemed obvious that it was working, that something was going from the, the dead to the, the women, even though that once they'd, they'd started washing their hands, um, he just couldn't get his, his theories accepted. The hospital dismissed him in the end, and he ended up in a, a mental institution. Uh, and his theory was just dismissed. Um, someone just called it a crackpot idea. So it then took at least another 20 years before someone rediscovered the same theory, in which time thousands of patients had died. How did they rediscover the theory and why the second time around did it work? I mean, I'm stunned by this. I knew the Semmelweis story, it's medical lore, but I had no idea that he was dismissed, died in a mental institution, and that his theory didn't automatically change how 
we began to clean our hands in surgery. Well, it wasn't even his theory that was rediscovered. It was Joseph Lister uh, in Scotland who pretty much did the same thing. Only the difference was this time that Lister had the Pasteur theory, the germ theory, which had, had recently been published. He had that. He had some scientific backing, which is which really what helped. So it wasn't until 1865. This is about uh, 20 years after Semmelweis, 1865, that um, Lister first applied the, the idea that you keep a wound clean, that you don't introduce any infectious particles. And then, again, another kind of 10, 15 years before this was widely accepted in surgery. Uh, so it took an awful long time before these ideas were were accepted. And really, Semmelweis wasn't completely recognized until the uh, the beginning of the 20th century. And now he's now he's a, a hero. So talk to me a little bit about when surgeons began using masks and gloves and sort of the, the birth of the modern operating room. Really, this is about the turn of the, of the 20th century, when they certainly by this time were washing their hands and washing their hands in a kind of bleach compound, um, using gloves for the most part as well, on top of that. Um, early operations, this was uh, Joseph Lister, pioneered this uh, carbolic spray, which is literally spraying the whole sort of operating table and everyone with it with carbolic acid, this really nasty, caustic stuff. So they, they went really lurched from no understanding of infection and dirty operating theatres, pus and blood-encrusted aprons, and just shocking conditions to this completely over-the-top, totally uh, what they call aseptic surgery with this cloud of this, this vapor that would wipe out pretty much anything and also really sting your skin. Um, uh, but then they kind of settled into a, a masks and gloves all around the, the beginning of the, of, the, of the 20th century. And, and just simple things like making sure you had clean sheets on the, on the operating table, make sure people weren't breathing too near the patient. But even then, you look at pictures around the beginning of the 20th century, loads of people, loads of surgeons crowded around the operating table. And you have to remember this is also before antibiotics. So if there was an infection, then that's it. There, there is no way of, of countering it. So, again, the, the surgical lore is that it was actually the wife or the girlfriend of the head of surgery at one of the major U.S. hospitals who insisted on gloves, which sort of got that started because she said her hands were being ruined by the, by the, the, uh, the was it, I don't know if it was a Clorox-type bleach they were using to clean their hands. But in any case, that it seemed to be created initially for the doctors and nurses more than for the patients. Uh, yeah, I think, <laughs> to be fair, a lot of this was, and this is one of the problems that, uh, that Semmelweis had when trying to introduce this, this hand-washing into, uh, into surgery, was because he's asking these doctors to wash their hands this nasty bleach-like substance, and they didn't like it. You know, they, they, wanted a, they wanted nice, clean, soft hands. They didn't want these kind of nasty, kind of stinging hands with this horrible bleach. So, yeah, uh, I think it's fair to say surgeons, doctors came first, patients second. I like to think that's changed. <laughs> it's, it's changed in some ways, but I'm not sure as many ways as we'd like. There's last more to come after the break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot, fast, and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Uh, let me, if I could, turn our attention to what we learned from warfare, um, because you mentioned the book a little bit about uh, Dwight Harkin, who was an icon in America, and his kids, by the way, his son is a surgeon as well in this country. Uh, to teach us a little bit about uh, about his insights and how it changed some of the thoughts, for example, that Theodore Billroth, perhaps one of the most famous surgeons ever to live, uh, had quipped that any surgeon who would attempt to operate on the heart should lose the respect of his colleagues. That is a, a quote that is uh, taught to every single doctor learning heart surgery, uh, and even today. There was something about the heart, and I think perhaps there still is about the heart. There's, there's more to the heart than just a, a simple pump in many people's minds. It's, it's tied up with the soul, with the very nature of the body, and of course it, it's so crucial. And I think there was and there was a problem getting over that, that barrier psychologically, that thinking of the heart as just a pump, a way of getting the blood around the body. Um, but there were also these quite severe technical limitations for operating on the heart. Um, you can't just stop the heart. You can stop the heart for a couple of minutes, um, but then you've got to get it started again. You could operate on the heart, but if you cut into the heart, suddenly all the blood's spurting everywhere. There are so many problems with operating on the heart. Dwight Harkin, who was really the, the, the pioneer of open heart surgery, uh, in 1944, so uh, in the Second World War, he was working in the, in the west of England, and he was seeing patients. He was a chest surgeon. He wasn't really, he wasn't really such a thing as a cardiac surgeon. Uh, he was a chest surgeon. He was, would remove shrapnel, bullets, uh, all sorts of things from from wounded soldiers' chests. And they had this, this x-ray technique called a fluoroscopy. So it was like an x-ray, but a moving x-ray. So you could see what was going on inside the body, like some of the modern scanning techniques. But this was a, a sort of x-ray, early x-ray. And you were looking at this, uh, the, this chest of the soldier. And normally they could see bits of bullet or, or shrapnel. And in this case, they were looking through the the lens of this, of this machine over the soldier's chest, and they saw the, the metal of a piece of shrapnel. They saw it jumping. It was jumping up and down. And it meant that that was embedded in the soldier's heart. And 
Dwight Harkin had been doing various experiments on animals, and he reckoned he could successfully remove this piece of shrapnel from a heart. He got permission to do do this operation. And what also made this possible was that they had blood transfusion at this point, and they were able to pump in blood into into someone on the operating table at pressure. So if you lost blood, you could hopefully replace at least some of it at the same time. So he decided to go ahead with this first open-heart surgery, and he would be operating on a beating heart. And you think of the amount of blood that's circulating around a, a body. He'd open up the chest, and there was the heart beating. You could see the shrapnel in the, in, embedded in the wall of the heart. And this is the, this is the really historical moment. He cut in to a beating heart, which is, at the time, and even now, is a brave thing. It's a brave thing to do. Cut into a, a beating heart, and, I mean, blood just spurted everywhere. Um, the, the blood is still pumping, the heart is still beating, and he was able to remove, or at least get hold of this, uh, this bit of shrapnel, and blood going everywhere. He, he pulled it, and it, it wedged in the, in the hole that he, he'd created. So he took a bit of a breather, and, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, then it popped out. So suddenly he got this spurt of, of blood. And yeah, they're, they're putting blood in all the time, but nowhere near as much as this, this poor man's heart was losing, losing blood. So he sticks his finger in the hole then, so at least it stopped again, and then gradually, slowly stitches the sutures together around it. And then he finds that he's managed to stitch his glove into this, into this poor soldier's heart. So it was, it was incredibly tense, but he, he eventually cut the, the glove free. They actually talked at the time of leaving his finger in there. It would have been a lot easier. They cut the glove free, and the soldier survived. And he then went on to perform more and more, almost all, successful operations. So, I mean, an amazing man. I think the history of heart surgery is, is in itself fascinating. Well, his, his offspring have continued his... Uh, his remarkable advances in, in the field. Uh, so, me if I could fast forward us for, for most Americans, uh, it's a moment of pride, uh, but for the entire world, it changed uh, our thoughts about the heart when they began doing open heart surgery in the cold town of Minneapolis, Minnesota in the 50s. Why, why Minnesota? Why did it all come together there? I've always been curious about why they become hotbeds for advancement that uh, are you know, in places you wouldn't have normally expected it. What they first did with, um, with heart surgery, uh, they called it at the time smash and grab heart surgery. What they wanted to be able to do was, was cure, if you like, or stitch up, mend holes in the heart. And a lot of the, the work on this had actually been done in Canada, so, uh, so not, in, uh, not in Minnesota at all. And one of the first techniques was to try and gain more time. So if you're operating on a, a beating heart and you clamp off, everything going in and everything going out. You've got about four minutes before the blood oxygen level drops. So you're talking about, well, brain damage and death. So what they want to do is be able to increase this time. So you've got more than four minutes. And the first technique was to cool them down, to cool the patient down. And they did this with a, predominantly you're talking about operating on children, very, very sick children who wouldn't probably have had many more years years to live. So the first surgery that was done, in, yes, in, in Minneapolis, um, uh, by cooling a child down, 
gradually, gradually using cold water tanks and this, these sort of circulating blankets of, of cold water. And that gave them six minutes. And it was a surgeon called John Lewis who did the, the first of these, these operations and successfully managed it in six minutes. And one of his assistants was a chap called Walter Lilliheim. And he thought, well, we need more than six minutes. You can do, uh, you can do a simple operation. I mean, simple, it's really immensely complicated. And you've got to assume that what you're expecting to find is there. If it's suddenly more complicated, that's it. You, you can't do any more. Um, he was in the operation. He came up with, I think, which is one of the most incredible operations in the whole history of surgery called cross-circulation. So this was before the invention of a heart-lung machine. What they would do, I think, well, actually, we're all heart-lung machines. So what he figured was he could connect one of the, a sick child on an operating table to the blood system of one of their relatives, obviously with the same, the same blood group, also in the operating theatre. So when he cramped off the child's heart, it was the parent, also in the operating theatre, who was doing the breathing for the child. So you were sticking two circulations together. And he had uh, a milk pump, used to uh, carry milk around dairy uh, to connect the, the, these tubes, which were actually the same tubes you'd use for beer. So in a bar to bring up the, the beer from the cellar, uh, he used those, sort of bit, uh, those beer tubes and a milk pump and connected a parent to a child and performed successful operations on children. I mean, there are so many things that could go wrong. And it, it's also... I think probably the only surgery in, in the history of surgery with the, with the potential for a 200% mortality. And he did almost kill uh, one of the parents uh, that he used because a, a bubble of oxygen, a bubble of air got into the, into the system and caused them brain damage. Oh, that's right. And, and I, I, was, you know, I, I knew uh, Dr. Lilyhigh, and he would always say that the most difficult task that they faced, and it's, it's almost unimaginable for the audience today to hear this, would be to operate on a uh, child in the morning whose family had trusted you with their kid uh, and had the child die and have to go back the afternoon uh, case and meet that family, uh, accept responsibility for that child, knowing that the morning case had not gone well. And I, it, you know, again, this is the kind of emotional uh, trial and tribulation that accompanied the technical uh, miracles that they were seeking. I think Walter Lilyhigh is one of the these incredible, like uh, Dwight Harkin and Semmelweis. There are many of them who are these incredible, courageous surgeons. Surgeons who who didn't cross the line, who still pushed the boundaries of surgery and did remarkable things, and but got the balance right. And without them, you know, so many people would not be alive even today. Uh, I think. Uh, Walter Lillyhigh, just bef uh, not long before he died, had a, a reunion of, of his patients. And he's got to be one of the most loved surgeons in the world for the, for the amazing advances he, he made. And, I mean, cross-circulation, it, it's, it's an amazing thing, but it didn't actually last that long um, before they came up with, eventually, um, a workable heart-lung machine. But, but let me, if I could, get back to the original question. Why Minneapolis? Why, why, why did this become the hotbed for advancement of and development, really, of cardiac surgery as we know it? It's a very good question, of which I don't have the answer at all. Yeah. I think it's uh, one of these things. You get 
one, and then you get several, and you get these, these hotbeds of surgery. Because it was extraordinary. That was really the place for open-heart surgery in the entire world. You know, this relatively small teaching hospital at the top of the United States. This was the place in the world for, for open-heart surgery. And people would come from all over the world for a chance of a, of a cure. And I think, it's, I think it's true now that you get these, these centers of expertise and one expert attracts another expert. And I suspect that it's because you had not just someone who was prepared to try this with, with, with John Lewis, but an assistant there who was also a great innovator who then took these things on. Uh, Richard Hollingham is talking to us about blood and guts, a history of surgery. Obviously, as a surgeon, I'm a bit biased towards a book like this. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> awesome. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B.